0: Well, I think we'll go ahead and get started. We've got a pretty good critical mass. And so I'm going to mute everybody and, and Dana, you'll unmute yourself.
1: Okay.
0: You have the devotional.
1: Okay. Am I? Okay.
2: Yeah. Now we can hear you.
1: Very good. Thank you. Um, An animal's eyes have the power to speak a great language. Martin Buber wrote that. The tongue may hide the truth, but the eyes, never. Mikhail Bugakov wrote that in his novel, The Master and Margarita. Perhaps you saw the darling picture Maggie Haywood posted of their grandchild, Stevie, recently. I was struck by her wise eyes. And Maggie commented that her granddaughter's eyes were those of her own mother. I remember my mother's and father's eyes. They express the story of our family. At transitional moments, we often gaze into each other's eyes as words won't fully express our feelings. The beginnings of what we hope for, a couple while sharing vows, a parent holding a newborn, a child while asking to be believed. We lock eyes when making, marking the end of what was. Immigrants leaving home and family to start a life far off from everything that they've known. A son or daughter going off to serve in the midst of war. A pet we must lovingly give final relief. After the words, we stare at our loved ones to finish communicating what we cannot say. Charlotte Bronte writes in Jane Eyre, The soul, fortunately, has an interpreter, often an unconscious but still a faithful interpreter, in the eye. Perhaps Bronte was influenced by Cicero, who had written, The face is a picture in the mind, with eyes as the interpreter. Matthew 6.22 begins, The eye is the lamp of the body. A part of a wonderful and moving post published in the Daily Blog, written by Jason Hill, a 40-year-old doctor at New York Presbyterian Hospital, of his work with COVID patients reads, The eyes will stay with you. In peacetime, most of those we intubate are chronically ill or profoundly confused or unconscious and unaware of the world around them. COVID has changed the equation. Most of my patients now remain awake and alert until the end. For those I intubate, those who choose intubation, I often find myself having a final stare. After all the words are spoken, the decisions made, the medications drawn, the bed positioned, the tubes and drips and ventilators ready, there's a final stare. It's a stare of intention. It's a moment of humanity. It's a shared space, a hallowed space, the final moment of someone's awareness, possibly forever. It's a space where fear and hope mingle, where autonomy fades into trust, uncertainty into acceptance, and all they have left is a place, is placed firmly in your gloved hands. It's brief and you're busy and time is essential, but you find a few seconds to share this final breath. That stare lasts a moment. That stare lasts a lifetime. And the eyes stay with you. In Chicago, Dr. Halil Akbarina, an ER doctor, tells of having to intubate Mr. C, who remained in this difficult state for 12 days with no family contact. Mr. C was was extubated and in a step-down unit when Dr. Akbarina went to see him telling Mr. C. that she'd been the last person to see him in the ER. He started to cry. He said, I remember your eyes. All over the world, family has been prevented from the intimate moment of eye contact to share life's final transition. They've been separated in painful and lonely ways. Even those who live near to one another aren't able to touch, to look at their dying loved one in the eye. When the time finally arrives when we're free to be seen outside of Zoom boxes or boxes with only our names, when we're free to see one another's whole and living selves, I pray and trust that we will see in one another's eyes an expression that we have missed one another as we share and pass the peace.
0: Amen. That's beautiful, Dana. I think we'll just dismiss. (laughs) That is absolutely gorgeous. I uh I just want to say to all of you who have uh all of you who've done devotionals this year. Sorry, I'm trying to let Carrie in here. There we go. Okay. I really do thank you. And they are they have been terrific as they always are as they always are. I know that it takes some courage to to do that and particularly if you haven't done it before or if you're uh, or if you're not don't know people very well but i really really appreciate all of what you're doing so dana thank you that showed a lot of work and a lot of thought and a lot of beauty so um i want to want to say just a couple of other things about uh we were going next week, uh, we do is, is our last week and we do read the book of revelation. And I, I sent you a guided reading to it, but I'm also going to take the last part of, of today's lesson. I hope to just prepare you for that a little bit, because we'll get a lot more out of the first hour or so next week. Uh, if, if you do kind of follow that reading or, or be aware of, of what you're reading, because it is a hard book to read. Um, the second thing I want to say, and I may have said this at the last class, as I as we've done planning into the summer, I definitely am going to offer um, some a new course for uh, for you all, uh, for for anybody in the church. I think what I'm going to do is a course on characters in the Bible, uh, for probably four from the Old Testament and four from the New Testament. But what I'm wrestling with now is the times to offer it. Um, and, and I need to pick the characters. I just need to do a little more work on it. But I think that um, people are so valuing this time together. And just because it's summer, it's not like we all have to <laughs> – our lifestyle is not going to change uh, once summer comes. So I do want to have a course that that I'll run in June and July. So um, we'll have about a three- or four-week break um, and then then pick up. But I'll be getting the publicity out on that either at the end of this week or – or a little bit later. Uh, I just want to get it kind of finalized. And uh, so with that, uh, Larry, yes,
3: it's Judith. Since yes. we're talking about the very end of the course, I would like everyone to know that Dan um, and I have been really disappointed that we haven't been able to provide our usual weekly sustenance to you all. But we do have a cookie cookbook with all of the recipes that we will be sending out within the next couple of weeks.
0: Oh my gosh, that's great. That's terrific.
3: All the recipes of the cookies that we served all this year.
0: That is great. That's, that is wonderful. So that's great. Thank you.
3: Uh,
0: and we will, I mean, you all have paid for a big year-in party, and we'll have it sometime. Okay, we'll have it when it's when it's safe. Uh, so And that will be face, that will be where we can see the eyes. Okay. So, um, so what I want to do about the first three letters of John, I I spent some time reorganizing this, this week. And part of it is just to, um, I guess to try to, to get a handle on it and make it more relevant. And each time I teach it, it's each time I teach, I I try to, you know, to just do, do something better, I guess, or do something that, that seems more coherent. I think kind of like first and second Peter, first, second and third John, these really short books at the end of the Bible are often more known or appreciated because of some just gems within them, J-E-M-S, just one little verse or half verse or maybe a section of scripture that, that become very meaningful for people. Um, and and often those are while they're they may be related to the overall theme of the of the book they're not necessarily and, and particularly in John because most of those gems have to do with love it's not that love isn't a part of the book but but that's probably what John is most known for or, or what these three books are most known for but what I want to what I'm going to do in the class is I want to talk about two um, important themes. Of, of how the book functioned theologically within Christianity uh, and, and they're very important and they have to do with the, phys- what I'm calling the physicality of Christ because the, the theological hinge of this book is, is, uh, you know, is Jesus Christ a physical human being or is he just a spirit? And that's a very fundamental issue in Christianity. It relates to Judaism and it's important going forward. And then in the second half, I want to spend time just looking at about four or five of these gems, some of which are gems to me uh, and, and may not be to you, but but I want to spend some time doing that. And then at the last part of the class, I want to do a uh, look forward to revelation. So so this is going to follow. I mean, a lot of this is in your handout, but it's not going to be in the order that that it's been presented. Um, so let me, but let me start at the beginning of the handout with just the notes on first John. And these pretty much are, are, have a lot in common with second and third John too. Um, these are very short letters and, and first John is referred to as a letter, but it's more likely a homily, uh, or an essay that's addressed to a specific problem. And the specific problem is, um, a very intense divide in the church with strong language, but it's over the physicality of christ Uh, and, and we'll talk about that in a minute that's the specific problem most of the scholars almost all of the scholars think that that the person that wrote the gospel of john also wrote first second and third john and that the book of revelation comes from the same school or movement within christianity so they are all of those what five books the gospel of john the three letters and Revelation are really from the end of the New Testament. They're dated at about 100 uh, AD to maybe a little bit later. Um, and they were likely written in Ephesus. And the historical background, which is really the theological background to, to 1 John, is that the letter speaks of certain people who, quote, went out from us, which basically means split. Uh, from us. Um, and it calls, the letter calls these persons antichrists and liars, which is not the most, uh, we just agree to disagree language. I mean, it's very, it, it, antichrist is a very strong word and liar is almost as strong. Um, but, but the issue is that those who have, who have left, who are no longer part of the church deny, deny, that jesus is the christ deny that jesus is the messiah but but the basis of that denial is they deny that that jesus christ as messiah has or could have come in the flesh and that is that's a very that's what i want to talk about here at the beginning and i want to do it with with reference to to two things both the um both how that relates to Judaism and how that relates to the Greco-Roman world or the Greek, almost Platonic thought forms, into which the Gospel of John is written and from which we come, um, and I and I want to I want to be pretty simple in this, but but we've talked about it before and, and it just gets clearer. I think it gets clearer in my mind, even though I'm oversimplifying a little bit here. Um, what I have come to learn about a major about the question wh- which some people have asked and people on the trip ask it. It's like, you, you know, you go see the garden tomb and you go see the, the, uh, the birthplace of Christ and all these sites and you hear these guides talking, you just wonder, um, well, why is it that the Jews just didn't accept Jesus as Messiah? It's kind of an innocent question. Um, and and one of the reasons is there were a lot of different religions of the day and sects of the day uh, and people you know claiming they were the messiah or little groups that had different definitions of messiah but that's that's not the main thing i want to talk about here the the thing to understand as a christian about judaism is that judaism is so focused on the majesty and the transcendence and the power of God. I mean, the the Jewish religion, you could summarize by saying it's about God. And in Judaism, the idea that God would be divided into something like the Trinity is just inconceivable. But it's also blasphemous because for... For God to take human form, or for any human being to claim to be God, is is to enter a space that that only God occupies. And so, what at, at a basic level, what Jews scratch their heads over Christianity about is how is it can, that anybody could worship a God that was divided, or worship a God that you know, that, that was human. It's just, that was a human being. It's just sort of inconceivable to them, to Jews. The places that we see that some of the, the holiness of God, the absolute difference between God and humanity is, is just in the character of Moses where if you'll remember at one point, whenever, whenever Moses was allowed to see God, he came back with a veiled face. And whenever, uh, after the, uh, the uh, golden calf incident, God did reveal himself to Moses, but Moses could only see his backside, not his face. It's like God is so majestic that, that no human being uh, can see God. And there's always a fear in the Old Testament of if you see God face to face, you will die immediately. Um, another place is that in in many aspects of Judaism, it is it is not only blasphemous to think you could see God or that a human being could be God, but even to utter God's name. And so in the reason that in the, uh in the Exodus passage where when, when Moses asks God's name, God responds Yahweh, which means I am, or I am who I am. It, it's a, it's a verb of being, it's a verb of entity and and for Jews, even to write that name or to speak the name of God, for for strict Jews, it's blasphemous. that's why sometimes in Jewish writing, you may see a columnist writing, and they'll when they come to God, they'll do g uh hyphen d, you know they'll keep the vowel out just like Yahweh was all was all consonants. It's also why in Matthew, who is the most Jewish gospel, Matthew doesn't quote Jesus or doesn't use the phrase kingdom of God. He uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, because heaven is a substitute for what would be a blasphemous act if he wrote or or uh, uh spoke the name of God. And so part of what Christianity exists in is this, um, what, what makes it different from Judaism is that is that it's the Messiah is claiming to be a human being. And that is just inconceivable and, and blasphemous in that tradition. That is not the issue in John. Because in John the the horror that Jesus is claiming to be human or that the claim is made that that Jesus as Messiah is human being comes out of the more platonic heritage where there is a division between spirit and matter. And there is, it's inconceivable to the opponents in, in this gospel that, that God could be as lowly and as evil as matter is and and that is essentially that the belief that uh, that God or Jesus is spirit and is holy and is you know, is above all um, is called docetism, and this. Gospel, I mean, I mean, this letter is written against that view, so that those who have left us, as, it, as it's described, are uh, are those who deny that Jesus is the Christ because Jesus is human, and deny that Jesus has come in the flesh, because if Jesus is coming to the flesh, that means he's entered the world of matter. And the purpose of human life in Plato and in Greek tiered philosophy is to be elevated above the world outside of matter. Um, it, it sort of relates, those of you who listen to my sermon today, it sort of relates to, to what I was saying about, about first Peter, that, that the language in first Peter is just so heavenly that it sort of never touches the earth. It does, but you have to look for it. And I was comparing that with the minister in Texas whose language was so heavy, you know so heavenly that it didn't often touch earth. The the people against whom this letter is written have a view of Christ that's always up here, that there's just no way that Christ could touch earth. And if he if he touches earth, if he becomes human, that means he's born. And that means he dies, and that means he is death is a criminal. That means he has a body, and and that means the body is resurrected. All of those things are just like saying this evil part of humanity is is actually God, and and so that is the divide. That was a very big issue in, um, in the early church, and. The view that prevailed was that that Jesus is human, and it is a more Gnostic religion, a more spiritualized religion that did not prevail. Um, and so part of what we have in our culture, I guess I'm going on about this longer than I thought, but part of what we have in our culture today, and, and many popular writers, Elaine Pagels being one of them, is is a lot of rediscovery of the sort of Gnostic aspects of Christianity that were ultimately rejected, that, that ultimately lost. And, and in many ways, the whole uh, Da Vinci code and the Dan Brown books are represent uh, uh, sort of present a, an idea that there was a conspiracy to keep Gnosticism out and you know those books are fictional, whether or not it was a conspiracy that clearly Christianity went a different direction than Gnosticism. There's also a lot of interest in more Gnostic expressions of Christianity, and I think there's some legitimacy to this um because there's a sense that much of that was associated with with women or the female and and the goddess you know Sophia, the goddess of wisdom, and so that it it partially represented. A bunch of men keeping the women out, and there's probably truth to that, too. But it it uh it really hinges theologically on this issue of what I'm labeling today, physicality. Um, and I want to point out a, really two places where we see it uh, here. If you look on page two of your handout, uh, where at, down at the bottom where it says. Uh, Chapter Four, one to three. So, First John Four, one to three, is what I'm going to be quoting. This is where you see the writer of of the letter of John, you know, rejecting the view that he's not spiritual. Uh, so, starting at at First John Four, one, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh with a body, with physicality. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Every spirit that that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is not in the flesh is not from God. And in fact, the writer says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you've heard that is coming and now is already in the world. A second place that we see this is in, is in 2 John 3, which is over in page, I mean in 2 John verse 7, which is over on page 4, uh, where it says under text of 2 John. Second John is so short, it doesn't have chapters. It's just got verses. So second John seven says, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. This was such a huge issue. That it garnered the kind of language that that John, you know, that that the writer uses here, um, and and so that that's what's going on. Is the question is is Jesus Christ physical? And the answer is yes, 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 yes. Um, and then the the third thing I want to say that, and then we'll have a have a time to to talk about this is there is an important ethical dimension that grows out of this belief in the physicality or fleshliness of Christ. And that is if, you know, to to put it this way, if God has become flesh, then flesh is, at least has the possibility of being good. But more than that, paying attention to matters of the flesh, to matters of physicality, to matters of the world is important and follows. So, um, and this is where this theme of John, this concern of John about love and love one another is really important. So if you'll look on page two of your handout or, um, in First John three verses eleven to twenty four, I'm actually going to start reading at verse sixteen, and, and think of this in the background of how important it is to believe that Christ came in the flesh. So, at First John three sixteen, right about a third of the way down from that pa- that page, we know love by this, that He Christ laid down his life, his body, his flesh, his blood for us. And therefore, ethically, it follows that we ought to lay down our lives, our flesh, our bodies, our blood for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's good and sees a brother or sister in physical need, and yet refuses to help. Um, and and I just you know I guess I want to I do want to say this, and then then unmute you all for for questions or response. Um, if you step back from this. There is so much appeal in the human spirit, um, and and in a way, Dana, just the beauty of your devotional sort of spoke to this. But but there's so much appeal to to the idea of the soul and the upper life and heaven and spirit. I mean, it is just so healing and beautiful and attractive, and we all want to be there. And that's that's all we want to have to deal with. Um, but, but a religion that's based just on that does not have much of a basis or a very strong basis for taking this life and this world and our bodies and the bodies of our brothers and sisters and the earth on which we live with as much urgency or importance. Whereas if you believe that God has come in the flesh, then everything we experience when we walk the face of this earth is important, and is uh, is is rightly an object of our love and of our care, um, and and that's one thing that I've always uh, like liked saying about the resurrection is that. Um, Ooh, I've got people I need to, uh, is that one of the important side events, side things about the resurrection of the body, when we say that phrase in the Apostles Creed, is that it's just an affirmation that bodies matter and that the condition of bodies matter and that the condition of the earth on which they live matters. Um, whereas if the resurrection is, is sort of in the platonic sense, leaving the body and going to its higher form in heaven, it's just a little harder to, um, it's just a little harder. Are y'all hearing me? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I just muted everybody. I hope I didn't mute myself. It's just a little harder to make the case that what we do in this life is important. So with that, I'm open for question or discussions for a while, we've got really good time on this. So anybody that wants to react to that, or say, what on earth are you talking about? Please do, okay? Hello, David and Beth, good to see you. You're in your bright patio, that's beautiful. We've been talking about the importance of the earth. So question from anybody. I can only see 20 of you. So speak up if, I don't know why this doesn't do better, but anyway, speak up.
1: Larry?
3: Yes, somebody
0: spoke. Thanks. That
1: was me, Um, Dana. Um, You know, this is one of these times when I'm hearing you speak now, it reminds me of the convenience that I have felt about being a woman in this way. Years ago, it was probably in the '70s, middle '70s, when uh, I was at uh, Nassau Presbyterian Church. At, we were at Princeton, and uh, Frida Gardner, who I think went on to be generalist moderator of General Assembly, I can't remember it anyway. Yeah. She was at the church, and she one time during a Bible study asked the women in the Bible study, um, to read the Bible, substituting she for him and so forth and so on. And I realized that it really made a difference to me. And now when you're talking um, and you're saying, you know, about uh, God and the flesh, I'm realizing that conveniently I can step back as a woman because I don't know what it would like to be a man, what it would be like to be a man. And that, it just struck me.
4: Okay.
5: <laughs> so how about that? That's
4: good. That's good.
0: <laughs> I'm I'm constantly aware of who I don't know what it would li- be like to be like. <laughs> so the older I get, the more I realize that. <laughs>
4: Hey Larry, I'd like to make a comment if I could. It's good. Yes, Kurt. I think it's, it's very beautiful the fact that Christ was in human form and physical form because let's face it, he knew what we were going through. He went through it himself. Right. And I think that that speaks very deeply to all of our hearts, not criticizing the Jewish faith at all, but I'm just saying that that brings it to our level. That brings it to the understanding and and also even the existence of the Holy Spirit are the mo- some of the most wonderful facets of our of our faith. And I just think that it'd be hard for me to get my head around that God only exists up on a throne somewhere away and, and did not, you know, the, the greatest compliment he could have ever done to us is become one of us. So yeah. That's my comment. Thank
0: you. Yeah. And Kurt, the, the only way I would take what you've said is, um, and I may have been misleading in my comments, the Old Testament and the Jewish faith is extraordinarily earthy and, and earthbound. And God is, you know, the, this human being that's angry and that's involved with the earth and creates the earth. And, and there's this strong, very strong ethical dimension in Judaism to care for the earth. Um, it's, It's the Jewish belief in the, in really the majesty and holiness of God in in a, in a powerful sense that makes it hard for them to accept that anybody, that any human being could be God. What I'm saying, what I would, where I'd want to direct your critique is more at the Platonic view. that the body is evil or that matter is evil. And that in order to really be in touch with the good, we have to be up here at the spiritual level. That's more what John, what the writings of John is against than than Judaism. I I did that whole section on Judaism just because it's, for those of us who've had Old Testament, I mean, it's a question, but it's, it's an important thing to say, but. But I don't ever want
4: to apply that, that, I mean, Judaism does care about this world. I didn't, I didn't take it that way. I hope I didn't come across that way. I just want to be clear. That that we have that I think is very nice. And I would say just in final is that I think in order to understand good, you have to know what evil is. You have to look evil in the eye to really know what good is as well. Yeah, that's good.
6: Hey Larry. Yes. This is is Nate.
2: Oh, hey Nate.
6: Um, I kind of have a question on this concept of of, well, I don't have a question on the concept of the physicality of Christ. Um my question kind of goes towards John and James concept of well, so if if we if we begin the premise with the physicality of Christ, meaning that what happens on this earth matters, then what we're saying is what we do. Our acts matter. Yes, and that's the that's the argument that both John and James are making: is that what you do on this earth matters. Yes, yes. And now, to a certain extent, that goes along with what Kurt was just saying: is because you know, if you see evil, you are required morally, ethically, to do something about that. And it also kind of goes along with um, with the Jewish faith of taking the opportunity. To lift your your the daily mundane to the level of divine, um, but what does that say about Paul when he says it's gr- by grace alone? Well, um, because that would mean if we're yeah. if we're following the premise correctly, it's not the physicality that matters. If we're following Paul, Paul qua Paul, Paul for the sake of Paul. Yeah, if we're, if we're following that, then it's it's not the physicality, it's the grace.
0: Yeah, and yes, and and I think I mean that's a, that's a good distinction, Nate. And there there are places in John, you know, that I was reading today where I can't to where it basically says you're judged by what you do. Um, and Paul would would
6: not say that. Yeah, um, that was always my biggest problem with yeah. Paul. Yeah, Um, I think Paul,
0: um, Paul is probably a little closer to this Platonic Greco-Roman view, even though he was Jewish mm -hmm. than John is. And, and obviously this is a tension within Christianity. I mean, Presbyterians drive ourselves nuts over does God judge me ultimately and decide whether or not I am saved based on what I do, or is it, if not predestination, at least God's sovereign choice and grace? Yeah. Could it could the answer so think, be oh go on, sorry. I think the answer to, to what you're saying is that uh that's really more a definition or a question of salvation than it is of purpose although you know you can't separate them too much it's well if if, if, we're
7: go,
6: if we're going with like with uh a judeo-christian slash greco-roman uh oh, okay. view of, of how to analyze this which is what westerners do yeah. um you know the, the telos the the end goal our purpose would be in line with these concepts um so what i've been what i've kind of been focusing on is um is the line where your treasures are there your heart will be also um which is as we were talking in class the purpose of that verse is focus on god as your primary directive as your end goal that is your ideal and jesus christ is the embodiment of that ideal on earth um And from focusing on that, you will then do good acts and good works. Yeah. It's not the acts themselves that you're focusing on, even though you can do that to lift the mundane to the level of divine, but that's focusing on, on what mankind can do for themselves to lift the mundane to the divine. Whereas if you focus on God as the ideal and then allow the acts to follow, then you will have both grace and acts.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's as good a solution as any. Okay.
6: first, it's first cause and secondary ramifications.
0: Okay, that's good. Beth Lloyd.
8: Um, I have a question. Um, but it, uh, my question is not really. It's based on what Nate was saying, and and that's also, okay. But I don't have a reference from John one, two, or three. But I do think. We have to, or I would like somebody to help edify me, uh, regarding the fact that you don't get to heaven by doing good works.
0: Okay. I'll, I'll give it my best, Beth, cause I think wait, you.
8: But wait, but uh, wait, I'm okay. not finished. So, so we've got that little, one little question. And then against what we've been talking about, and if we're, and, and my belief would be that as we trust in God, follow God, uh, and believe in Jesus, uh, that we wouldn't do bad works. But even really good people sometimes do bad works. And many people that are very good uh, but are not Christians right. also do incredibly good works. Right. So I'd like to understand that, um, Confluence of what about good works? But that's yeah. how you get to heaven.
0: Yeah, I, I can answer the first easier and just and give you a a, a Presbyterian answer. Okay, that's not okay. That's one little sliver of Christianity, but um, I I do believe that that God saves us through grace as a gift that we don't earn it. If we are, to the extent that we're aware of that gift, our response is one of gratitude. So that the good works that we do are more motivated by a sense of gratitude to God than they are desire to earn God's favor. Um, I mean, that's the standard Presbyterian answer, okay? And I'm not sure I can do better than that. In terms of, and there is a place in John where... It says, you know, where it deals with people who are good but aren't Christian. I think we'll see that later. But I would say that, you know, one of one of the one of the phrases for that is, is anonymous Christians or Christ and good people. Uh, I don't. I don't believe that one has to be Christian in order to be good. There is universal good in the world. And, and there are some universal norms. They may be shrinking, but there's still some basic universal beliefs about about what is moral and what isn't. And, and I think those are shared across, I think they're part of the human heart and the human spirit. And Jesus affirms those, is in touch with those, but I don't think one has to be Christian you know, to be good. And,
8: and may I say, relative to that, that as you study Taoism or Buddhism or uh, Hinduism uh, or um, uh, Islamism, Islam, um, yeah. they all also hold up good works. Right. So how? Uh, so speaking to your point, that yes, you don't have to be a Christian to do good works. So what's the difference then, and uh, fact, yeah. <laughs> why is just doing good works insufficient to get into heaven? Is mm-hmm. not is not the question. Your belief in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the pivotal yeah.
0: here.
8: I mean, I'm just asking.
0: Yeah, my way of answering that. It's a very good question, and, and my way of answering it is is two. One is that sometimes when you frame when people frame the question that way, belief in Christ becomes another work. You know, if I just say the words or if I just get myself to believing in Christ, then I'll be saved. And I'm not sure that's much different than if I help my postman when he drops his mail. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? It can become a good work. Yes. I think um I think that the deeper answer for me is that, again, as a, as an old-line Presbyterian is, um, we don't know the mind of God. It would be a little bit hubristic or assuming too much to think that we could define exactly And who wasn't or who, you know, who God chose to extend his grace to or who didn't. So like C.S. Lewis and a lot of others, I, I just encourage people to leave that question up to God. That's one we, we can't answer. That may be a cop out, but my business, you're
6: allowed to do cop outs. Okay. No, that's Uh, a solid shout out to C.S. Lewis. I appreciate that. Yes, (laughs) yes.
0: Uh, the, the other thing I would say, Beth, and, and this, this is one way and I don't want to say that I get around it, but it is it is kind of what I believe. Um and as I've told you all before, my my sense of God from everything I know about him biblically and, and want to know about him as a human being and, and from Christ is that is that in the end, if I had to bet my I were, you know, if I had to bet or if I was, you know, put up against the wall and say, Is it this or that? Um, I think that God at least wants and therefore possibly in the end figures out a way for everyone to be included, to be the recipient of his love and grace. I also think that if that happens, it is through Jesus Christ. Um, Does that mean people have to believe or act in the name of Christ? Not Not necessarily, but that... But that, as a Christian, I believe Christ is the way um, that God has now come to relate to the world, and and that the love He brings is what would is what would include people. That it's through Christ. But I don't want to have to define it more uh, precisely than that.
6: Well, Larry, are are you saying that you believe in Christ as man? Or believe in Christ as an idea?
0: No, both. As, as the Messiah.
6: As, because it's God well, with us. Well, it's it's kind of it's kind of hard to come to God through Christ if you don't accept that Christ was man and died on the cross.
0: Yeah, but I'm not saying come to God through Christ. I'm saying that uh that if God saves everybody, that's going to be God's choice. And that it probably has something to do with the fact that God visited the earth in the presence of Christ, in the form of Christ. I'm, I'm reversing the order, Nate, from what you've said.
6: Okay, I got you. Okay. So
0: this is really heavy. Does anybody want to talk about eyebrows anymore? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but I will say this, that, um, of course, those questions, uh, Beth, your question of is a wonderful question and those questions i i've heard and i get very muddy trying to figure it out but what i've really come to understand is that uh my belief in christ and my need for christ has more to do with my everyday life and my life on earth than it does of a question as to whether or not i'm going to heaven yeah
8: okay i i
9: that makes sense to
8: me okay
0: so so.
9: sorry it's carol i just want to follow up on no, what carol, you hey, said yes. it seems to me what you're saying without wanting to really say it because it's hard to say is that you may actually think that if people jews who skip over christ and think they do have a direct hotline to god are mistaken
0: are mistaken yeah, I would not say that. That's not what I'm wanting to say. And I I can see where it would sound like that. So I'm, I'm very focused on on the sovereignty of God and the freedom of God to do what God chooses. And therefore I believe that God could choose to bring anybody into his eternal presence that God chooses. And I don't think as a human being we've got a right to draw to draw fences around that or to define that. So you so you can get there without You can't get there. You are gotten there. <laughs> okay.
6: okay. Okay, but that's well, what I, I want to dispel. It's not guess something it, we do. I guess I'm wondering. I'm kind of getting caught up on the on the physicality aspect, which is what uh John we started is saying. With. Yeah, yeah. The physic because if the physicality argument would say you have to believe that Jesus Christ, the man, died on the cross and then no. resurrected.
0: I mean, because no. that's the
6: physicality argument.
0: No, I just think the physicalities, the physicality, just focuses God's care for physical life. That okay. our purpose is not to escape this life, and that's what is very much in common with Judaism.
6: Yeah, and I like that because I I like bringing it back to, you know, what you do on this earth matters. Right, it does. Because and, if if it didn't matter, then. If some, if evil, it doesn't you do nothing, yeah, um, I, I would find that to be a morally uh, problematic situation. So I like that we're bringing it back.
10: Yeah,
6: we're bringing it back to, to the concept of what you do matters, which is lifting your everyday acts to the level of divine. Yeah,
0: what you do matters, and and I think God is big and
6: loving and
0: sovereign enough to where even if in even if what we do doesn't matter enough, or we don't live up to it—which we don't—that God can still extend His grace to us. Yeah, at the end. that's basically what I'm saying. So um, I just don't want to confuse those two things. I think we. I think, yeah. Go ahead. Okay, Roger. Um,
2: I, I guess w- when we're talking about this, I think about my GPS. And I want to go from here to there. And I, and there are five different routes that are shown me. Mm -hmm. And there's one that's most efficient and seems to make the most sense, but it doesn't mean that the other four don't work. Right. And, and I kind of think about this whole question that way for me. It makes the most sense yeah. to move on, on what's suggested, but that doesn't mean that the four other ways won't get people to the same spot.
0: That's great. What I would add to that is if GPS has God in it, which it probably does somewhere, if GPS is, if there's somebody behind the GPS making those five ways work, that, that person would have the power to choose way seven and just pick you up and zap you there that wasn't any of those seven ways. Okay? That's the kind of power I'm talking about. And if you, if that happened to you, you would say, oh my god, that's wonderful. I'm going to go do this. I think. Although you might say, well, I must be superior since that happened to me. Okay, Marilyn.
8: Well, I was going to say that this is something, that, this topic that I kind of struggled with it, because when I was growing up and went to a Catholic school and Catholic church and all, and even at that age, when we were told, you know, you shouldn't go into a Protestant church, so and so right. on, then as I got older, having friends of different religions and different faiths and beliefs, it never made sense to me that just because I was raised in a culture of Christianity. It meant that right. I had to go to heaven and somebody else wouldn't.
3: <laughs> right.
8: So, so I That's appreciate,
0: uh. That and Roger are why you're a Presbyterian. You walked into a Protestant <laughs> church and look what it got you. <laughs> Although I think that was, I don't know, I'm not sure the church was part of that. <laughs> but anyway. All right. Well, let's. I, I do think it's well let's take a break. Yeah. We need a break after this. So let's take about seven or eight minutes. And for some reason I don't have a clock on me
8: today. <laughs> I it.
2: It,
0: is. it is
6: so cute. cute. Okay, yeah. so
0: it's four fifty eight, so let's be back definitely in place by ten after. Definitely in place,
3: ready to go.
6: All right. Thank you. Hey Larry, quick question. Yes or Nate. Have you, have you ever heard of the Greek concept of kathacon? So it's I'm not, I'm it's this sure. it's this idea of um, of correct actions or developing a habitual daily routine that over an extended period of your lifetime will minimize bad actions in order mm. to focus your attention on What, what the Greek, what the Stoics called the Logos, which is in their version, uh, divine plan that we're all supposed to align ourselves with. Okay. So, you know, that's, in my mind, I'm translating the, the, where your treasures are, there your heart will be also. Kind of in, kind of in that, in that line of thinking. Okay. Which is develop daily habits that are in line with the logos with so if we put this in a in a Christian concept in line with god 's plan of doing the right thing and and focusing on god on on yeah. um on on jesus um and then over time and then this also goes into peter ean's concept of like the wisdom journey
7: yeah. over
6: time over a lifetime you've 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 negated the wrong things yeah. and you've focused now, you know, cause you don't, you know, you have a spectrum of options throughout your life. You learn through trial and error. Hey, don't do this, this, and this. And you minimize your, your focus on, okay, here are a correct number of options that will get you in line with the Greek concept of the logos but the Christian concept of, of God's, uh, divine plan. Yeah. That, um,
0: that does all seem to go together to me.
6: Yeah. So that's, that's the the basic premise of, of stoic slash Christian concepts from what I can, or that's how yeah. I can link them together, I guess, if that yeah. makes more sense. Um, yeah. interestingly enough, Cathicon is the root word for Kathy or Catherine, which is mom's name. Um, Yeah, Catherine means those who are in line with God's plan. Okay, cool. That's good. Um, But that's – yeah, because I've been trying to figure out how to square this <laughs> Square the circle of this, of this, uh, axe and grace concept. And that's what I'm going with. That's right. That's, that's what I'm going with. That's a good place to be. All right. Thanks.
5: Larry, I just had, this is Judy. Yes. I, just, I have one comment. Um, and I just wonder, I mean, hearing all of this and I, I have been, Studying and doing Bible study for years, and going through these classes and so forth, and I just wonder if did God really intend for it to be so complicated? Um,
0: <laughs> no.
5: I, I mean, that's kind of into my into my comment, but I think we, you know, we're all really smart people, and we've been studying for a long time, and we've studied with you and right. certainly other people, and we're still struggling with this and trying. Right. You know, I think in our lives, I mean certainly for me and probably everybody else, we're all trying to live good lives yeah. and, and and somehow you know get to the after a, a pleasant, wonderful afterlife and yet it seems <laughs> so complicated and I think of people who are not in our position that haven't studied so much um, you know and and maybe they don't stew about this the way do we do yeah. And they're
0: blessed um, because of that.
5: It, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I appreciate all your efforts and, and right. and you know, everybody else's comments on helping us try to understand it.
3: Yeah. Judy, you know, it's Judith. What it reminds me of is um when my mother used to talk about spiritual stuff and she'd just shake her head and, and she'd say, I don't know why we're making it complicated. The dumbest people can get this stuff. Yeah,
4: right.
3: and, <laughs> <laughs> It's
0: true. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. And and that's why some of these verses and you know, in both the New Testament and the Old Testament, we claim to I mean uh you know, whether it's John three, six
7: Judy. I I heard you in the distance and I came over because that's a question I ask all the time. Why does it have to be so little and complicated? Yeah. Um <laughs> and, you know, I, I hear these. I hear some folks say, "Well, I don't. I don't get really into the Bible. I practice Christianity, and you know, you want to study the Bible, but actually do it. And I think that's a false dichotomy. I think we have to really do both. I think if you're interested in God's, where you're going to study it, you you have to know everything there is to know about it. So, but I think you should be at least sort of interested in what God is revealing to you. Yeah, I mean, uh,
5: yeah, I agree. Thank you.
7: Yeah.
0: The, the great old testament passage you know one of them i mean just love the lord your god with all your heart all your soul and all your your mind and your and then your neighbor as yourself those are two things and jesus put those together
5: mm-hmm.
0: and uh he has told you oh man what is good what does the lord require but to what do justice love kindness and walk humbly with your god and you know there's texts like that in the new testament too philip has got his hand up he's got the answer <laughs>
2: I've been trying to be quiet, and I can't be quiet anymore. This okay. is not a complicated thing. Right. The Testament makes it exceedingly clear. Jesus tells us, no one comes to the Father except by me. That's how you get to heaven. You believe in Jesus, you confess him with your mouth. Uh, the Bible also talks about good works. But if you look at what it says about good works, it's, it says nothing about salvation via good works. Yeah, that's true. And uh, as Presbyterians, we believe that God made up his mind before we were on this planet, who is going to be saved, who is not going to be saved. That may not be a comfortable idea or a popular idea, but that is what the Bible says. Now you (laughs) have to decide, are you going to believe that or not? That's up to everyone. You can decide for, uh, for yourself, but that's what it says. Uh, <clears throat> for me, I'm going to go by what Jesus says. Um, I've explained this before. I can't remember if it was in this class or another one, uh, but the way I understand the discrepancy between, uh, being saved by faith and being, and the value of good works is I am saved because God saved me. It is a free gift of God and right. I, accepted graciously good works tells me where i'm going to be when i get to heaven uh, the person who does an awful lot of good works is going to end up in the heavenly version of a mcmansion in great falls i am going to end up now in a apartment <laughs> somewhere
0: <laughs> in
2: heaven That's what good works do
0: all right. We we gotta get control of this, folks. Thank you, Phil and everybody else. I love it. Thank you. This is great. This is great. So Phil, greatest combination of Luther and Calvin I've ever met in my life. Thank you. I hope they would think so. So at, at least from the little I know about both of them. So okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna mute everybody again and, and close out this lesson by just uh close, close out this part of it. By reading uh, probably one of the most famous parts of of the of first John and that is chapter four seven through twenty one It's on page three three of your uh, of your handout. But in light of all of this emphasis on uh, on the physicality of Christ uh, and and the ethical results of that, here his wonderful phrases about love in that light, if you will. So I'm at First John 4, verse 7 is where I'm starting. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. And then if you'll skip down to the next paragraph, I mean, skip a paragraph, and then the, the next one begins with, God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because God first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers and sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from God is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. Um, and, and the reason I read that after this, this discussion is just to, this gets us a little bit away from the romantic view of love or, or the solely emotional view of love. That, that love here is really loving the neighbor, acting, being bonded with one another as a reflection of God and as a reflection of what God has done. And that relates to um, to the Christian belief or affirmation that Christ has come into the world Or that God has come into the world in Christ as a human being. So with that, what I want us to do for the next, uh, few minutes is to just point out a few of what I'm calling these gems, G-E-M-S, from, uh, from, uh, okay, from, from John. And these, these are verses, some of which you will have heard, some of which will, will mean something to you. And uh, and possibly not. Okay, here I'm back to gallery view. Okay, um, and I just wanted to give a little bit of background on some of these. Um, one of them is at, is on page one of your handout, and it's it's what I have it labeled as is is theme one. And if you look down at at the very last, or, or starting at verse 23, there at the bottom, it's so it's First John. Two, verse 23 uh, just hear how often the word abide appears and it really relates to the old hymn that we often uh, sing at funerals abide with me which is a beautiful old protestant hymn no one who denies the son has the father everyone who confesses the son has the father also let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is what he has promised us, eternal life. And now on to the next page. I write these things to you concerning those who would deceive you. As for you, the anointing that you have received from him abides in you. And so you do not need anyone to teach you. It is simple, Judy. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Um, the Greek root for the word rabi, abide is, is meno, and, it, and we get remain from it. And it, it is it is just a beautiful concept that, that whatever... Whatever this mystery is that has led God to become a human being and, and be Trinitarian, God and Christ and Spirit, it is the remaining in or abiding in that entity that is, um, that is what gives us life. And so just the concept of abide is, is something and abiding in God's love is something that, that is often popular in this, uh, you know in this gospel, and i want to go i want to do, go through all of these and then then let you all have a have a chance to respond and some of them are really personal to me if you 'll look down on that same page, which is page two of your handout uh, i 'm reading now from the section that 's verse uh, i mean chapter first John one chapter three verses eleven to twenty four i 'm actually down by uh, where it starts verse eighteen um, Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this, we will know that we are from the truth, and we will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts. Now, I have to say, and I take this a little bit out of context, I think, but that phrase, God is greater than our hearts, is just a phrase that is really definitional for me. It's it's almost a theme verse. It's almost something I could put on a bumper sticker on my license plate if I ever believed in putting bumper stickers on my license plate. I don't like anything on my car. But what I've, what I've always taken that to mean, and again, it relates to my upbringing in, sort of in the South and just in, in seeing the emotional and revivalistic aspect of Christianity and so much of the attempt of of many preachers and much of Christianity to try to, to get people to have an emotional conversion. When I hear God is greater than our hearts, that tells me that, again, God's love and commitment to me and to the earth is greater than how I feel on any one given day, including whether, uh, you know, whether my relationship with God is through the heart emotionally, whether I've you know, had an emotional conversion or not, um, that, that, it, that the direction is from God to me and God is not dependent on where my heart is at any one moment or any one period of my life to uh, determine his attitude towards me. Um, And it just gives me a freedom to not have to figure it out myself. If I can trust (laughs) that God's greater than my heart, then when my heart is in a, a less than vaulted mood, shall we say, does not mean that God has abandoned me. Okay, that's just my little simple thing. We'll we'll come back to these. the The next little gem I want to point out is in the next little section. It's First John four one to three, and it's simply the phrase, "Test the spirits to see whether they are from God." It, it begins, "Beloved, do not believe every spirit." but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and then by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has come is from God, and every spirit that does not confess is not. It goes on from that. Um, My theologian friend Christopher Morris basically wrote his book. I think it's it's got that in the title of Testing the Spirits. And again, a little bit out of context, though. But but not too much. I think that this is just a verse that puts a tremendous responsibility on us as human beings um, to test what we are hearing, whether it is in religion or philosophy or politics or the purpose of life or human relationships. We, you know, God is giving us this ability to test and make up our minds, whether we believe something is from God or is not from God. And, and I think that's a joy. I think it's a burden. I think Judy, it's a little bit of what makes it
6: complicated
0: because, you know, because we do have the, have the decision to, to decide. But, uh, but I think in a book in which promises a lot of God's presence with us, the idea that we are being told to test the spirits and see whether they are from God is just a great responsibility and, and a great privilege. Uh, so that is gem number four. The last two are right back, right together, and the last one ends with a story, and then we'll have time to talk, and then we'll turn our attention to Revelation. But if you'll turn over to page three of the handout, and this is in the
2: uh,
0: section called theme four, God is love, which if anybody asks you what the Gospel of John, I mean, the letters of John are about, that's what they would say. Um, but, but, And we read this earlier. But it is simply the phrase that's underlined and in italicized. And in italics, perfect love casts out fear. Um, that's like a proverb. It's like something your grandmother would teach you. It's like something you've heard in Sunday school. And it's just a great thought. It's just a great phrase that, that a perfect love from God or even the love from a, from a human being that's never perfect, but, but can be close, Uh, casts out overcomes fear. That that a relationship in which fear um, is is a major element is is probably not a relationship in which the love element is being fully realized. Um, but it's just a gem. You'll hear it. Perfect love casts out fear. This is where it comes from. And I'll I'll give you time to talk about any of these. Then the next one which I want to want to do as a story is It's right in the line below that. We love because he, God, because God first loved us. Um, That is the best reason for infant baptism that exists. And it relates to God is greater than our hearts. And, and the way I'll tell the story, and then then come back to it, and you all, some of you will have heard this before. But um, when I was a student at Union um, Seminary in New York in the '70s, William Sloane Coffin was the minister of Riverside Church, and they were having a human rights Sunday in December, where where then Ambassador Andrew Young was preaching, and so there were so, there were this first time I'd ever seen limousines and secret service. And you can just imagine this church was filled with people. And of course I got there, uh, you know, maybe five minutes before the service and they have these big formal ushers and it's a 3000 seat cathedral. And I'm standing there at at the center of the back row and this usher points to me. I saw an usher in the center aisle up front go like this, like ushers used to do and they had put up, they were putting up folding chairs in front of the front pew. And so I was ushered up to sit on a folding chair in front of the front pew, and it was right on the center aisle. Uh, and, and Coffin, who was a big, burly, six-foot-five New Yorker, came down in his black robe for a baptism. And so this young couple come up holding this tiny little baby that you couldn't see wrapped in swaddling clothes. And you've got this big towering Bill coffin over him. And it's a heavy New York accent. And I, I was like right parallel. If I looked directly to my left, I could see coffin and the baby and the parents. And then looking up about four stories are these archways. And there are people standing in the archways, because it's so crowded today, kind of looking over down at this little baby. And it was just like my image was. This is like angels from heaven looking down at this little baby. And so as part of the liturgy, Coffin did these words that I'd never heard before, but I have never forgotten them. I mean, I can't. It's just had a big, and it's from the Reformed Church of France. Uh, And you, Whitney has used these some in our church, so you may have heard them before. But what Coffin did in his palm of his hand was take this little baby and talk to the baby and said, little child, for you, Christ Jesus came into the world. For you, he did battle and suffered. For you, he endured the agony of Gethsemane in the darkness of Calvary. For you he cried, it is finished. For you he died, and for you he triumphed over death. Yet you, little child, know nothing of this. But thus is confirmed the word of the apostle, we love God. Because God first loved us. It is, and that's from the, it's from the French, the baptism liturgy of the Reformed Church of France I later learned, and I've used it at times, but I, it's almost too emotional for me to use it, and I never want to get it wrong. But what that says theologically is that this child is baptized into the faith and has no ability to know that God loves him or her. And therefore, it bears witness to the fact that God loves us before we love God, and God loves us, and and that our love for God is not what causes God to love us. And, And that sort of says everything I've been trying to say in the complicated hour before this that it is about God, that it starts with God, that God gives us the ability to love and, and that it's that the movement is downward from God to us. And, and there's nothing greater than the contrast between a God in heaven and a tiny little baby who is, who is being given that love as an act of grace. Uh, so I love that event. I mean, me seeing that was just one of the, you know, more unforgettable things that that I've experienced in church or in my life. And with that, those are all my little gems. You're welcome to introduce any of yours. And I'm going to unmute. Well, I'm just going to give you a time to unmute yourself if you want to say anything about any of these gems or, or you have your own to share. And just remember, if you don't talk, we're going to all go into revelation. Okay.
6: It's Cause that's our next thing. So
2: who
0: wants to hey, say, Larry,
6: something? Can, you, can you email us that quote?
0: Uh, it's in your, it's in the handout.
6: Oh yeah. Okay. Hold on. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks.
0: But I'll be happy to email it to you. Now it's in the handout. So. Hey, Larry. I'm yes, sir. That's Wayne, isn't it? Yeah.
7: I have one real quick one that I like to quote. I, I'm sure, sure. many of you in this group have heard it. Uh, I'm sure you've heard it, Larry, but I always kind of liked it. Uh, there's a story that Carl Barr took yes, a trip sir. to the United States. And some reporter, yeah, he's a great theologian. Some reporter. Came this up, is a great story, Wayne. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. Um, some reporter, I think it was from the Chicago Tribune came up to him and said, Mr. Bart, what is the most profound thing you have ever heard? And his answer was so wonderful and so simple. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Right.
0: Yeah, that's a great story. And, and if you don't know who Carl Bart was, he wrote Church Dogmatics, which is about, what, 10 volumes, Mark, something like that? The most complicated and difficult theology to read, written. I mean, since Aquinas,
7: he's practically unreadable. Yeah, know. it's
0: practically unreadable. But his answer was, and I think the question was, "Can you summarize? Can you summarize what you've written? Can you summarize the gospel?" And he said,
7: "Yeah." Anyway, I thought that was great. It's
0: great, Wayne. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's pretty darn good. Other comments or questions?
11: Larry, it's me. Yes,
0: to Mary
10: Ann.
11: Hi, I just, uh, I feel that this is, this, Jesus giving us love, God giving us love. He also gives us the ability to distinguish goodness and, and the emotional, uh, ability to relate even as children. You know, it's not something that we earn, we just have it innately. And some of this um idea of how can people who maybe aren't as bright as other people still have such a faith, that's that's an inherent thing. Yeah. I don't think that comes from studying or anything like that. I think that you're you're born with that and you you develop it in different ways. I mean mm-hmm. that's my feeling on that.
0: Yeah. That's good. But anyway.
11: Yeah,
0: that's that. good, Marianne. You're on you're on to it. So <laughs>
11: Yeah, I find I find being a Presbyterian only for like a year, a year and a half. I love it. There's a lot of analytical um, parts of it that I didn't know, and I, I'm finding it fascinating. But the emotional part, like that I've been brought up in, sometimes I miss that. Right. And that's what I I still seek in the Lutheran Church, and then I once in a while go even back to my mother's old church, but um yeah. there is other aspects of it that we have to recognize
0: and and that's what our sort of weakness or less developed part is sometimes as presbyterians and although you hear a you know i, I got to see most of your faces on the screen and there were a number of uh, undry eyes when dana was giving her devotional today so we sw- we slip that emotion in there every once in a while, but it's usually not intentional it It's so much richer when it's natural, you know when it just comes comes from the heart.
9: So well, you had that in your sermon this morning. you had a lot of heart in your sermon this morning. Absolutely. I thought it made exactly. me really choke up this
0: morning yeah. well, wow. thank you. I think I have you have
9: more there than you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: No, thank you. So it—it's sort of never intentional, but it—it it does come. And believe me, it's the one. One of the things I miss is not being able to see people's reactions. I mean, you know, other than Jim Buchanan and, and Vince and Alex are always fiddling with the camera. You know, so anyway. other comments or. Does anybody have a gem from this book in your reading that you really liked?
10: Larry, this is Catherine. I'll I'll add one. This was sort of, I don't know if it was in between or in one of the sections that you read, but in, in 318, um, it says little children, let us love, not in words or speech, but in truth and action. Yeah. Um, And that sort of followed the passage about seeing a brother or sister in need. And that spoke to me in the same way that James and the, the idea of faith without works is dead, that, that, that idea that, that, um, that it's important that our love manifest in ways that serve our brothers and sisters um, really spoke to me.
0: Right. And Jay, yeah, that's very consistent with James. And it's sort of, I mean, one of the, one of the phrases or monikers, you know, you hear from time to time is, is preach the gospel and sometimes even use words if you have to, you know, the idea that we, it's what we live is, is the gospel. So is the good news.
4: Larry, it's Kurt. I'd just like to say it, it kind of boils down to me very, very simple that, you know, the word love is overused in today's secular society, but the way we show we love each other is what our actions do. We don't even have right. to take the word. The look of, like, like Dana said, the look of the eyes and the actions you do shows how we love each other. Right. So why don't we, uh,
0: I, I also, let's turn a little bit to Revelation and then maybe we'll have some time to just, you know, just share, uh, today, uh, towards the end. So, um, I, I'm pretty sure I sent you this handout as well about a guide to reading or reading A guide to reading Revelation. I think I sent it to you when I sent the handout. Does anybody look familiar with that?
10: Um, You you might not have known you were getting that today, but um, But Larry, I think you may have sent us two files that were both today's um, notes. Is that?
0: You're right. I sent you. I sent you. I think I sent you that that upcoming handout. Okay. Yeah. Okay, let me. Um, I, I'm not sure I want to take the time to try to send it now. Let me just talk you through this a little bit, but I will send you after class. In addition to the lesson handout on Revelation, this is a two-page thing, and it may be the same thing. But this is this is kind of an outline of Revelation and, and an introduction to it and I, and i think to just to just be simple and and kind of cut to the chase um some of you have heard have heard me talk about apocalyptic literature and and that is what revelation is it is very the, the book in the old testament that's apocalyptic is daniel and both of these books but especially revelation have have throughout history been used uh, by writers as a way to try to predict the return of Christ, particularly Revelation has, um, and and the writers that do this are have huge influence in in culture. In the 1970s, it was the book The Late Great Planet Earth, which was very popular. In the 90s and in 2000s, it was the Left Behind series, all of which are, um, are essentially, uh, books that believe, are, books that, uh, that believe you can equate events in the Middle East and events in current affairs and, and have a sense of predicting when Christ is going to return. Um, what what I give you in in apocalyptic literature and approaching revelation is is a different viewpoint than that. It's a minority viewpoint. It's not a minority viewpoint within the Presbyterian Church or within mainline Protestantism, but often mainline Protestants just don't talk about it. We've sort of ceded this literature to the TV preachers and to this to this um, this other viewpoint. Um, what the popular literature tries to predict the end of the world of when Christ will return. It tries to correlate current events, particularly in the Middle East, with the symbolic language that the book of Revelation is full of. It tries to decode the symbolism and figure out as much as the date and time of christ's return, um, and it att- it potentially tries or is used to persuade people to believe in Christ so that they will be saved or raptured and not left behind and and often the way it does that is through is through a fearful use of much of the symbolism and believe me. The symbolism in the Bible has much to fear. I mean, I'm not saying that that they're using it illegitimately, but but it certainly is a um, if you know one of the popular images of of the rapture and the Left Behind series is you know two people are driving down the road in the same car, Christ is coming, one is raptured up to heaven, and the other is left behind on earth, uh, maybe in a car crash or not, but they're really I've used the, the example before that, uh, that when I was a kid growing up in, in the Bible belt, um, there were times when, when a lot of my peers were going to, to church camps on the weekend or, or youth, you know, youth weekends at, at really hardcore churches where they would be shown films about the second coming that were very judgmental and frightening and would, and would really Frighten kids into belief and I've compared them with the old driver's ed films that, that I was shown as a, as a teenager where the, you know, the sheriff or the sheriff's deputy would come with gun and holster and, you know, uniform and hat and all that. And they would roll these films that were just horrible films of wreck scenes to 15 year olds who were about to get their learners permits that it was just sort of the use of blood and guts and fear. And, and a lot of the literature of Revelation um, is, is used that way. Now, what what the, the basic belief that I have about this book that you'll you'll see at the beginning is, I'm very much a believer in apocalyptic literature, um, and one reason is that it presents a it presents reality as a as a cosmic struggle between the forces of good and forces of evil. I like it because it takes evil seriously. It takes the reality of evil seriously in the world. From dictators to Hitlers to, uh, you know, to genocide, to all the the things that that trouble us deeply. Um, It also believes that the present age of suffering will end when God suddenly intervenes and inaugurates a new age of peace and joy for God's people. Um, I basically share the view that we as human beings are not going to find political or educational solutions to bring in the kingdom of God. That that, that will have to be something that God does in God's own time and in God's own way. Um, and, and so I'm with apocalyptic literature on that. Um, apocalyptic literature uses images and symbols that almost the entire book is in images and symbols and for us to try to decode that is a little bit of a precarious operation but to get into the spirit of them is not but to try to equate them and make predictions on them i think is is a misuse of that Um, Apocalyptic literature is pessimistic about the current world order and turns to God's intervention as the only ultimate solution. Um, But it gives readers security and hope rather than fear because its message is that God is ultimately in control and the fate of the world and the fate of the universe ultimately rests with God. Um, You'll notice when you read Revelation that it opens as a it's a vision or a revelation to John, who is a seer, who is a prophet. Um, but John at the time is imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. And what we and, and it says that in the text, when we read the Isle of Patmos, that means absolutely nothing to us. What it was in John's day was the place where, uh, Christians and other religious believers were sent to be persecuted, to be persecuted for their faith. And so I've often said that, that the best way to hear this material is to imagine that you are in prison. That you're in a prison for your religious belief, that you're a political prisoner or a POW. And if you are in that situation, the dramatic literature of, of Revelation or of Daniel will appeal to you because like in Daniel, it's, uh, it's the story of, you know, a righteous young man being saved out of a lion's den or three faithful people being saved out of a fiery fir- furnace. Um, the stories promise that the cause for which you are being imprisoned will ultimately prevail. And and they're told you as a way um, to encourage your endurance, to encourage you to keep the faith when you're being persecuted. And, uh, you know, I've often pointed to, to the POW stories from Vietnam of the, you know, of John McCain and others where they were, you know, tapping in code to communicate with one another. Much of the literature and the symbols and the stories in Revelation are like code, where they're trying to give Christians, or, or give give believers, coded messages or dramatic stories, as a way of encouraging their faith. And that that's different. It's it's one thing to to have as your message that God's God is ultimately in control, that God will ultimately prevail, and that the cause that you are. Being persecuted for will ultimately prevail. So stick with it. That's a prediction. Yes, God is ultimately going to be prevail. That's different from trying to equate the symbolic language with the time and the place and the way that, that God is going to prevail, which is what I think left behind in some of these other books do. Um, finally, I, I want to say that in the book of Revelation, there is while well, I believe that ultimately the promise is positive, there is plenty in the book that that both implies and says that there is an element of judgment in God's final decision, and so it is not. Uh, you, you'll read at the end and and in some of on the handout. Uh, I think Knight and Levine nail it very well that that it's basically. At the end, a promise of a return to the Garden of Eden. All the image of garden and beauty and language is in. Uh, in, in Revelation 21 and 122. I've created a new heavens and a new earth. The former, you know, the first thing shall pass away. I and mean, It's really, really beautiful image. But there's still this sense that there is a human responsibility and that not everyone will be included in the garden. Um, and, and, that's one of the places in the Bible where my desire to be a universalist is pulled back a little bit, you know, by the text. Um, uh, but have, it, have so my advice to reading it is know that you're reading literature that's written to somebody in prison to give them hope and endurance and to promise that God is ultimately going to prevail and that those who are persecuting them will be held to justice, uh. And, and that's where a lot of the, you know, the the judgmental and tough parts of the book come in. But what I have sent you is, what I will send you uh, is an outline of the book that's just half a page. But it really, I think it'll help you if you'll read it in small doses, especially if you've never read it before. and and follow the outline just so you can sort of get a thematic sense of of what's there. And I think I took this outline from the Bible you've got. So it's not, I mean, it's not a radical outline. On the right of this outline, there'll be reading one, reading two, reading three, reading four, reading five, reading six, reading seven. Those are readings we're going to look at next week in class. Um, I hope to do this in about an hour next week just because I would like to at the end you know be able to just try to summarize where we've been in this class as as a final send off before uh, before we regroup and do something else uh, so with that, I'm going to you know we've got about uh, about ten minutes is all, but I'm really just open to hearing. How anybody is doing in all this. What's any, anything anybody wants to say to these 35 of your nearest and dearest friends, please do.
8: Cheers.
9: That went
8: out. Oh no. Your what? No, bad breath.
0: You have to unmute yourself. I see Janet's trying to talk, but she has to unmute herself.
8: Okay, unmute. Um, okay. I said, uh-oh, bad Beth, and David then muted me. So I couldn't <laughs> unmute me because I was getting a little wine. I
0: said cheers.
8: And I said cheers. And he
5: cheers. He That's remember.
0: good. That's a good message.
5: So bad me. Larry, Larry, this is Stephanie. I just wanted to comment. I have been astonished at the number of people I haven't talked to in years who are reaching out to me, people who I haven't talked to in 15 years who live in California, and everyone's a little fragile because obviously none of us know what's going to happen here. Many of us have, as I do, friends and loved ones who've been affected by the virus, Um, and it's a very uncertain time, but I think it's also been interesting to see the outpouring of um, reaching out to other people and asking for support or help or just a fifteen minute phone conversation that can uh, can help people.
0: Right.
2: Yeah. That's I just want to
11: say the church itself has been phenomenal. I don't think I don't think any of us could be where we are without the support of all the Meetings and the and the back and forth and the visual beauty of everything. Um, it's just been phenomenal, and I want to thank you very much for all you've done to uh, to do that. You know, to bring that about. Um, we appreciate it so much. It's gotten, it's made everything so much easier to get through.
2: Well,
0: so
11: thank, you. thank you. Thank
8: you. And Larry, um hey, <laughs> We, I, would, I would piggyback on what Marianne Jones just said. Um, and we have shared um, the services with our friends in Maine, who also live half of the year in California. But um, it has been really meaningful. And then we've been able to have some dialogue about your sermons and so on and everybody's. So, so I just wanted to piggyback on
3: that. Thank you. Well, thank you. This is Judith, I, I really appreciate what Stephanie said about reaching out. I've been trying to reach out to people, but I, the people that I haven't reached out to for a long time, I feel a little embarrassed to reach <laughs> out to them, but I've been forcing myself to do it. And um, Dana and I have a son-in-law who um, lost all of his jobs. He works in food service. Mm. And he cares for our granddaughter's halftime, and he just swallowed his pride and said, anybody that can help me, please help me. And his friends um, and family, we are uh, circling around him and trying to support him. And um, I just, I mean, I, today, as we told you before everybody got here, um We were, we listened to your sermon and um, then we, you know, we were sort of in a, in a role of, you know, listening and being, um, you know, this thought provoking uh, sermon. And so I Googled a progressive Presbyterian church in Milwaukee and I listened to their sermon and then I headed to the next time zone and Denver and listened to that sermon and then Dana tuned in to our family's church in Portland, Oregon. And, you know, you just do what you have to do. And I think, um, the opportunity to be part of these communities, um, is just really awesome. I mean, it's so wonderful. And, and, um, I think that, uh, what Beth was saying about connecting with family and then being able to be present for the same sermon, like, It's terrific. It's just wonderful. And it's just the way of finding some lemonade out of these terrible lemons that we've been served up.
10: Yeah. I'll add a positive experience that just occurred to me today. I don't know if other people are I know Larry's doing this, but everybody's walking lately, like around the neighborhood because we have nothing else to do and we're losing our minds. But I spend time every year um, with my parents in Vermont and some time with Dave's parents in North Carolina. Um, and in both of those places, I'm always struck by the extent to which people like wave and say hello to people that they don't know. If we go, you know, we go down the mountain in Vermont, and everybody's like waving and shouting between cars. And the first couple times it happened, you know, Dave and I looked at each other like, "Do you know that person?" Like, because I don't know that person, and like, it's a little weird, right? And and the same thing happens to us when we're in North Carolina. And and it's been funny because now it happens here. Like, I I have so many. You know, we we chat with the people that we know, our neighbors, you know, from the end of the driveway. But I also feel like. It's like driving down the mountain in Vermont now, like everybody says hello, you know, half of them are in face masks and stuff, but it's just okay. been, there's like a friendliness to our, our neighborhood that not that it's like normally an unfriendly neighborhood, but it's been, it's been kind of funny to see that change.
4: <laughs> yeah. Thank you.
0: I've, I've got to say, you know, from my vantage point, uh, I mean, everything y'all are saying about the church is wonderful, but it, it is because it's a wonderful church. I mean, I, Vince Christer and Alex Bryant, just they literally came to me. Vince came to me like day one or day two of this. These are two guys in their 40s. That Alex is the videographer, and Vince is a cybersecurity person. They're both on the session. And, and about two weeks earlier, they had seen this coming, and they started ordering equipment. For us to live stream that once we made the decision to live stream and to shut the service down you couldn't buy i mean it was just all gobbled up so they were so foresightful but vince came to me and looked me in the eye and i'm not technological at all but he said we are not going to let this crisis go to waste we're going to push you and make you do things that are uncomfortable and we're going to try things. And if they don't work, we're going to try something more. And it, I mean, they get, everybody's cooperation gets the credit, but but they have been absolutely magnificent in their dedication to people.
9: Well, I'd like to express my appreciation to them because, um, this has been so great yeah. that we can continue the classes and the streaming. So, um, if um, there's a special fund to pay for the, all this yeah. IT, um,
0: just there is. I'd love to
9: contribute it. to it because it's been a godsend.
0: We'll we'll take it because we're about to spend more because we have made a decision to to make the live streaming of the services permanent. You know to okay. do when and if we get back. So now we're in a in a shock okay. mode for what that's going to mean. But uh, and I well, just then, from from my vantage point. I mean, Carol, just send the money and market. You know, live streaming. But uh, this is—I mean, this class and the Wednesday class are the only time I get to see faces. Except, uh, wow. I figure I've passed about twenty to twenty-five members on the street, including Catherine, and you're able to stop and have a conversation. But I realize there are people in the church that I've worked with a long time. And if I if they're not on a committee or in one of these classes, you know, or on the session, I don't get to see faces. And I'm just, I mean, your all's participation has been so high, um, and part of it is, and, and like somebody said, the names. Now everybody knows everybody's name because it's like a name tag, you know. So you get to see each other. But it's meant a lot to me to do this. And that's one reason I want to pick up with another class here. You know, after a little break. So.
9: Great. Well, I look forward to the next class. Thank you. So. I think I have to repeat the prior ones too, but no, that's, that's all right. No, this, 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 this is really hard stuff.
0: It is hard stuff. I know it is. I know it is. But anybody can repeat. A lot of people, a lot of people repeat. So don't. That's but
9: Stephanie hard. keeps buying me more books so I understand it.
0: Right. Okay. <laughs>
9: I have so many books to help me through this, <laughs>
0: and, and now so much time to read them. So, so let's close exactly. the prayer. Dear God, we do give you thanks for this time together, and we uh, we particularly just are grateful for how friendships form and and sometimes even get stronger, certainly in crisis, and and the availability of technology to link technology to link us together. Um, We do ask that you'll be with a member of this class, Steve Derrick, who continues to to face really significant issues with the jaw cancer that he's got and be with Marjorie and his family uh, and all of those who, who have friends and relatives who are seriously ill and from whom we are separated. Let them know even beneath their tubes respirators, and if, if they're fortunate to have them, um, it comes through from those far away. We make this prayer in your holy name. Amen. Thank you all very much. And see you next week. I'll literally see you next week. Just <laughs> has a different meaning now. So, thank you, Larry. Thank you. Thanks, Carrie.
9: Have a good week.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Paula. Good to see you. You all
9: have a good week. Take care.
0: Yeah. Phil, go for it, man. (laughs) Of course. Get on board. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.